Welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the Global Specialist Risk Consultancy. I'm Claudine Fry. And I'm Charles Hecker. And this is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world and what it means for business. Claudine, what have you been up to for the past couple of weeks since our last episode? Well, I'm lucky enough to have been enjoying a family reunion, a holiday here in the UK, catching up with family for the first time in a long time. Claudine, congratulations on pulling off a successful staycation. No mean feat on a relatively small and densely populated island where everyone else is pretty much trying to do the exact same thing. I am holding out, hope against hope perhaps, on pulling off a genuine vacation (laughs) and vacating these Emerald Isles. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to travel easily internationally again? I do long for that, especially to South Africa, one of my absolute all-time favorite places to visit when that's possible. And the focus of our discussion today, we have been following very closely the events that have been unfolding there over the past few weeks, where there's been an eruption of serious levels of violence, certainly the most intense that there has been for some time triggered in part by legal proceedings involving the former president, Jacob Zuma, and leaving many companies wondering what lies ahead and whether South Africa is going in the wrong direction. When we talk about unrest in South Africa, and I guess analyse it, you have to sort of understand that South Africa has frequent violent protests and often the sort of initial trigger has nothing to do with kind of how that violence and how that unrest evolves and really the issue of the trigger and then the evolution has been one of the big ones that we've been asked by by most of our clients that sort of come down to this question of you know was this planned the president used the word insurrection some people even said attempted coup that was Seamus Duggan an associate director in our Johannesburg office and one of our leading experts on South Africa So really, there's three drivers, I think, three primary kind of things that were sort of causing what we saw, the violence, the unrest, the looting, etc. The first one of those was kind of political coordination. And I'm going to say upfront, that's also kind of the smallest driver, the least impactful. And it was only really relevant in the first couple of days. The second driver was just good old fashioned criminality. So you had a few organized criminal groups you know, we shouldn't romanticize that. That's literally you know, a fairly small group of people who, who plan how they loot. And then third, and this is overwhelmingly the case of what was going on, is just opportunistic looting. So people who see that there's unrest going on, and because of various socioeconomic reasons, you know, they take advantage of the situation. And for us, that particularly, like I say, after the first two or three days, that was the big thing. But if we sort of Look at this from a timeline perspective, you know, the, the trigger or the match for the Tinder in all of this was the arrest of, or at least the, the sentencing to imprisonment of former President Zuma, 29th of June or so. And that was kind of the, the spark for political coordination. So his supporters started protesting in, in pretty isolated and localized areas of KwaZulu Natal province. Those protests got a little bigger. And as they sort of evolved, that's when we had that criminal and opportunistic element coming in. And then that sort of took on a life of its own and led to the kind of the spreading and, and, and particularly the kind of widespread looting that we that we saw for that week or so or that week to 10 days. Seamus, we have just published a fresh version of our two-year scenarios for South Africa. 
And this kind of serious labor unrest and violence is our outlier scenario. Seamus, how close are we to rewriting these scenarios and making an outlier into something much more likely? Chuck, we are not close at all. This unrest was kind of expected. It was predictable. I think we actually published an update a week before saying something was going to happen after the Zuma court ruling. You know, we can debate things like scale and the, the nature of the damage that was done, but it, it was kind of expected. So I think something that's been lost in, you know, let's just say the media narrative or a lot of the public commentary on this is that while the scale of this unrest was fairly sort of unprecedented, we do have other examples in recent years that were actually quite similar, maybe didn't get as much attention. And particularly seeing that technically this is a local government election year, there's actually currently a case to maybe postpone those elections to February. But we've seen similar kind of large unrest in the same locations, being sort of the Durban area of KwaZulu-Natal and Johannesburg. So if we go back to the 2016 elections, there was, first of all, pretty violent unrest on the outskirts of Durban. And second of all, pretty violent unrest in Chwane, the South African capital in, in Gauteng province. And the patterns were actually very similar to this. So both of those events were triggered by political happenings. So in, in KwaZulu-Natal, it was basically rivalry over local ward nominations for councillors. And in Tswane, it was driven by sort of factional infighting in the ANC. And those are very much the same kind of drivers of the violence we saw recently. So the takeaway point here is South Africa does experience unrest. And what we saw, like I say, while maybe different in scale to an extent, it is actually in keeping with our understanding of the country and how it's going to evolve. So Seamus, clearly politics is a trigger for turbulence. Can you identify for us what some of the issues are that could spark further incidents of violence and unrest, not necessarily on the scale that we've just seen, but as you say, which replicates the, the type of unrest that we are seeing manifest in South Africa from time to time? You know, obviously, unemployment rates are very high in South Africa, you know, 40 to 50 percent, if you use kind of the informal definition or the expansive definition of unemployment. Levels of inequality are high. Those sorts of dynamics are triggers or at least contributors to instability pretty much anywhere in the world. But I think we should stress that those factors alone don't cause unrest. What you have in South Africa is you have that sort of socioeconomic inequality as a base. And then you have various layers on top of that that sort of provide red flags or that mean that, you know, unrest can be triggered. So, you know, the next thing is political rivalry. Like I said, very localized often. So you'll, you'll have kind of different individuals, different party factions vying for control of particular local wards or even municipalities. We see kind of the, the number of assassinations, for example, spiked in local government election years. And then also sort of in your bigger municipalities. But part of the reason that this unrest happens, and again, probably something to monitor, is also because there's sort of a view of no consequences, or at least a lack of consequences if people do participate in looting. And that comes down to sort of fairly weak crime intelligence or, or sort of not incapacitated, but sort of law enforcement agencies that are stretched pretty thin and struggle to sort of respond to these incidents. So really, you need to basically watch the political calendar watch the kind of rhetoric that different factional leaders are engaging in. And often that will give you a pretty good understanding of whether or not something similar is going to happen. And in your experience, Seamus, do many companies in South Africa have a setup that enables them to be doing the monitoring of those potential unrest triggers? Broadly, yes. 
you know, there's, there's always a question about how well defined those triggers are and how closely they, they're monitored. We obviously have a strong media in South Africa, but that, that, that sort of aids in that sort of monitoring, but on the flip side can sometimes sort of be a little bit inflammatory. So to be honest, you know, a lot of our conversations with clients are less around, you know, pressing the big red button and saying, this is now your time to evacuate. It's more around providing reassurance that no, this isn't actually what's being portrayed or no, this isn't actually something that needs to impact critical business operations. So I think assurance as much as kind of monitoring and understanding what the red flags are is really important. What have been the, the big questions clients have been asking you since this unrest occurred? Probably the, the one we get asked most frequently is, was this coordinated? And our reply to that is kind of, some of it was, some of the targeted sort of infrastructure sabotage and some of the stuff in the early days was, but the overwhelming majority was more opportunistic. And then the second question we get asked all the time is, you know, is this going to happen again anytime soon? Maybe, you know, less focused on the three, five-year outlook. Our clients are kind of interested, is it going to happen again in the next six months, three months, or, or the next year even? Right, because the legal proceedings against Zuma, Seamus, they've still got a long way to run, haven't they? Separate ones, yes. <laughs> the the kind of trial that sparked all of this was a contempt of court charge for not participating in what's called the sort of state capture commission. So that was kind of a an isolated legal case. But Zuma's kind of bigger corruption trials are still looming, and those will be stretched over probably the next couple of years. So Seamus, in, in light of the recent violence, and also, I suppose, with an eye towards the ongoing legal processes that you've just mentioned, how strong is the government? Was the government at all weakened by this recent violence? And what about the ANC, which is, I guess, sort of asking the same question. But when it comes to political parties, is there anything coming out of this violence, coming out of this protest? No, Chuck, I think it's actually the opposite. The government's probably actually a little bit stronger than when they went in. And again, there's probably two reasons for that. The first one is that Ramaphosa's administration for the last six or 12 months has sort of pretty gradually been entrenching its kind of grip on the government and on the party. If you look at sort of recent party meetings, there have been some pretty significant losses for his opposition within the ANC uh, and even within his own cabinet. So Ramaphosa's actually moved from a position you know, of strength to strength in a way. The second reason is that the unrest and kind of what we've seen in the couple of weeks since has shown that the sort of pro-Zuma people, let's say, in the ANC and in the government are actually not as strong as many people assumed. They're not able to mobilize the kind of support that they have threatened to. So, you know, in, in simple terms, their bluff has been called. And then maybe a third point just regarding the ANC and elections, let's say at an, an ordinary sort of election year, this sort of thing would lead to voter losses, probably even significant losses. But you also have to look at the other political parties and, and what's going on there to understand if the ANC is going to be sort of severely impacted. And while the ANC definitely has its internal issues, individual support for Ramaphosa is quite high. But also the opposition parties have really been struggling to gain political traction over the last year. So the, the main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, you know, to be, to be blunt, they've sort of been drifting further and further to the right of the spectrum. And in so doing, they've alienated both kind of moderate voters as well as the, the overwhelmingly black population who sort of increasingly are seeing the DA as kind of a, a white party representing white interests and kind of, you know, even big business interests. So they, they're struggling at the moment to sort of get any traction. And then the third largest party, the Economic Freedom Fighters, 
for many years, their, their growth and their public profile was based around their opposition to Zuma. But since Zuma stepped down or was forced to resign in, in 2018, the EFF has really struggled to find another platform or another kind of issue to tie themselves to. And to an extent, they are also losing votes internally because they have a very pan-Africanist sort of understanding of the world and of, of Africa. But at the same time, we sort of have this emergent movement, let's say, that's fairly xenophobic in nature or, or South African and nationalist. And the EFF sort of pan-Africanist ideals are clashing with that. We may see the ANC lose a couple of percentage points in votes, but really a weak opposition will probably prevent any kind of significant losses. Have there been moves afoot in the ANC to paint this as a Zuma problem rather than an ANC problem? Has there been any distancing between the ANC and Zuma? I mean, how is have they tried to sort of lance the boil and move on? They like to do this thing where they will talk around the issue without ever actually mentioning his name. They'll sort of use language that basically implicates Zuma and blames Zuma without sort of going directly after him. So, you know, it's a little bit half-hearted. It's not quite lancing the boil, but Ramaphosa addressed the nation, I think, around the 16th of July, and he used this word, this was a failed insurrection, which is quite, you know, politically and emotionally charged. And he was saying this was coordinated, this was planned, and that is basically him saying they blame Zuma and his supporters. We'll come back to our conversation in just a moment. But if you're enjoying the global insight and haven't visited controlrisks.com, you're missing out. Every week, we're adding new insights to help companies and investors better understand what's going on in the world. Do look at our second quarter security incident report that will be available on the controlrisks.com website for an assessment of the latest trends in security incidents worldwide. Seamus, do you see race having been part of the unrest that occurred over the last few weeks? And will it play into the elections? So, Claudine, you're sort of opening the gate to a wider and topical, I guess, political conversation in South Africa, which is kind of, you know, in many ways, it's framed as race versus equality or socioeconomic kind of status. And in South Africa, it just happens to be the case that that status economically is broadly, you know, aligned to race. So yes, you know, racial tensions do flare up, probably not always in the way that that maybe are expected. So to be honest, in in this latest kind of bout of unrest, what really came to the fore was tension between the Indian community in KwaZulu-Natal and then sort of the the, the black community. And that's where we saw particularly sort of acts of of violence or allegations of violence between those sort of two communities. Uh, In particular, there's sort of this the story that's been trending recently, and even a hashtag, you know, called the Phoenix Massacre, which is sort of this narrative that a largely Indian neighborhood watch opened fire on a large number of black people and killed dozens of them. Now, there's a lot of misinformation around this story. You know, on the extreme end, you have people saying that 300 black people were killed. And then sort of you have government saying that 20 people in the area died. But that sort of narrative is definitely one that sort of points to some of the the simmering, let's say, racial tension. So it's definitely a factor. And it's definitely something that that could contribute to sort of similar tensions in the future. So Seamus, just to put into context the unrest, the looting, and some of the localized political and racial tensions that, that we've talked about. For our clients, for for businesses operating in South Africa, to what extent are any of these the key challenges? How would you identify the top challenges facing business in South Africa at the moment? 
So the big issue with this unrest was probably operational disruption. So a lot of retail outlets, a lot of industrial warehouses, certain kind of fairly critical infrastructure was directly targeted. You know, your major arterial roads and urban centers were blocked on various days. And so from a scale perspective, this was a very real challenge, probably for most businesses. But even businesses who weren't affected took a precautionary approach and said just, you know, where possible employees should stay at home, for example. To an extent, to be honest, COVID probably actually mitigated the, the scale of that impact a little bit. But it's interesting because there are other things that are going on that probably have a, a larger impact on businesses and, and, and that are probably going to be around for a bit longer. The obvious example is load shedding. So we didn't actually have too much load shedding, which is kind of when the, the power utility cuts electricity according to sort of a, a schedule. Just for those who aren't familiar with the term, we're talking about power cuts, right, Seamus? That's it. Scheduled power cuts. It's, it's a bit of a euphemism. And the fact that I'm using the word and we're using that word is probably actually a PR victory for them and generally other infrastructure challenges. So, so one of the interesting things that happened, it actually happened, I think, the week before the unrest broke out was that one of the main coal export lines, there was a, a train derailment. And so a lot of the big coal producers couldn't export their product. That has obviously a, you know, a pretty significant impact on their business. So there's a lot of sort of infrastructure related issues that, that are going to be sort of sticking around in the long term, largely because the, the government is fiscally under a lot of pressure and can't necessarily afford things like maintenance or even expansion. So I think that's, that's probably amongst kind of the biggest challenges for business. Good old fashioned crime, you know, that, that's always a major issue in South Africa particularly, you know, along transit routes between offices and homes, for example. And then this is less of an issue, but you know, for, for a few years now, we've had some uncertainty on some fairly big ticket legislative items, things like land expropriation without compensation or the, the future of black economic empowerment legislation. Those issues are actually being worked through in a pretty stable and predictable way. And we are definitely not expecting anything that will sort of come out of the blue and surprise businesses. But just that level of uncertainty, I think, particularly for foreign investors who are choosing between South Africa and four other countries, is probably something that's going to be a critical factor in, in investment decisions. Seamus, you've left out one element, though. And if we go back to the very beginning of the Zuma issue, that's corruption, which has been a longstanding issue undermining the business environment in South Africa and the reputation of key post-struggle, post-apartheid political figures in South Africa. What is the Zuma incident and what is this outburst of, of unrest? What does this tell us about what's happening with corruption? So, so Chuck, I mean, we see, we see corruption, you know, it's, I wouldn't say systemic. It's certainly prevalent in our experience. Businesses probably get impacted in two ways. The first is just low-level corruption. So if you're going to a government department and you are applying for licenses or permits, for example, you do see a level of extortion that happens at that kind of very bureaucratic level. The second kind of place where we see corruption concentrated, and this is where it leads to a lot of kind of issues, you know, things like unrest, is the high-level corruption. So that's corruption that involves senior political figures or you know, business and financial interests that are linked to particular figures and sometimes are linked to entire factions of a party. And that's most acute in the public sector. 
So, you know, if you want to identify where reputational risks typically lie for businesses in South Africa, it would be if you are sort of bidding for a tender from a state-owned enterprise. That's that's really where we see kind of corruption thriving in a way. It's less prevalent in, in sort of within the private sector, so private sector doing business with private sector. But, you know, one of the challenges of working in South Africa is that there is a large overlap of political and business interests. You may be doing business with someone in the private sector who, you know, you've never seen their name, you're not aware of them. But if you do a sort of a due diligence or an enhanced due diligence into them, you find that they have various links into political parties, for example. And that's that's really where where a lot of this issue sort of comes to the fore. And I know sort of a lot of our clients, a lot of businesses, you know, if they, when they're operating in that space, you know, one of the issues that they have, if they're in the public sector, you know, they'll bid for a tender, they'll be awarded a tender. Then after the fact, a kind of a smaller company with political links will come to them and say, we're going to take this tender away from you unless you appoint us as your kind of local partners. So even after that kind of official bureaucratic process, we do see those kind of pressures building up. In terms of the relation between corruption and unrest, it's fairly closely tied to Zuma himself and the political base that he has. So, you know, it's not necessarily a trend where, where there's a strong connection between corruption and unrest. This is something that's very much tied to sort of the political persona that Zuma has built around himself. Legal proceedings targeted at Zuma aside, what else is actually being done to tackle corruption, Seamus? Do we view that challenge as one that is becoming more manageable for businesses? What's our take on, on the outlook for the corruption risk? Yeah, it's, it's definitely becoming more, more manageable. The problem was under Zuma, there was a very strong culture of impunity. So senior political figures were doing things and getting away with them with, without being investigated, without being charged. And that was because of the weakness uh, and the relative lack of the independence of our investigative law enforcement agencies at the time. And that, that is changing. It's a very gradual kind of slow process. It's something that, you know, can honestly take five to 10 years because you have to replace not just your sort of political heads of these institutions, but the middle management and even some of the bureaucratic sort of level employees. And we are seeing that now. We're seeing more independent prosecutorial agencies coming through. You know, it's not just Zuma that's facing charges. The, the ANC suspended Secretary General S. Mahashula. He's currently in court on corruption charges. So we are seeing that culture of impunity sort of gradually slipping away. And I think that's that's only a positive thing in the long term. Seamus, I'm afraid I can't get through this podcast discussion with you without asking about the pandemic. You did mention COVID-19 and the fact that actually it, it may have perhaps helped prevent the impact of the unrest and the looting being greater than it was. What's your take on how COVID-19 is playing into stability and into the outlook for South Africa? I think one of the big things that's changed quite recently is the, the rollout of the vaccination program. If we go back two or three months, there was quite a lot of public anger at the government. There didn't seem to be a vaccination rollout plan. The number of vaccines we were getting were far lower than some of our kind of global peers. And that was definitely refueling a, a sort of a degree of resentment, I think. And if you go even further back about a year, there, there was again, you know, that word corruption. There was quite a lot of, quite a lot of allegations around corruption in the procurement of, of personal protective equipment. And all of that sort of, you know, it's a bit like a pressure cooker. It was building up resentment and anger at the government. But the lid has kind of been taken off the pot since the vaccination program started to accelerate. 
particularly as we moved into vaccinating those people below 50, 55 years old. You have far higher sort of take-up rates of vaccinations, I think, probably globally, actually, in the under-50 age group. And so the, the number of vaccinations has gone up pretty significantly in the space of about a month. I think probably 6 million shots have been given now in a population of about 60 million. And the, the age group of 18 to 35-year-olds is now lined up to register for vaccinations from, I think, the 1st of September. So, you know, long story short, that acceleration is taking a lot of the pressure off of government now. And we do have fairly short memories. So I think, you know, people will probably forget quite a few of the missteps that were made along the way. So in terms of longer term instability, it's probably going to be a fairly insignificant factor. Seamus, thanks very much. Thanks very much to you both for, for your time today. That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Stay tuned with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as Legal and Compliance Insights, a monthly podcast that gives you a window onto the legal and compliance issues our experts are facing around the world. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping build secure, compliant, and resilient businesses by visiting controlrisks.com. The Global Insight is produced by Sam Tornio and Vicky Bufton. For me, thanks for listening and bye for now. And goodbye from me.